0: Uh, To many folks, uh, prayer can be a very confusing topic, and I came across some recent uh, examples, and perhaps you've heard of the little boy who was convinced that God's name is Harold. And when asked why he thought God's name is Harold, he responded to his mom, he said, Well, you know, Mom, that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. And uh, the other little girl in New York who was terrified to ride the subway And uh, her mother asked her if she was afraid because it was crowded or because it was dark or because it was fast or what the reason was. And she said, no, actually it's because you remember in the Lord's Prayer, God says not to ride the subway. And she said, "I, I don't remember that part. What part was that? And she said, well, you remember, you know the part, and lead us not to Penn Station. So, you know, there is some confusion there. And I like the story. You know, and if you stop and think about it, one of the most interesting concepts as far as prayer is concerned is one that I struggled with when I was doing football or baseball chapels. And I know that here we are doing a football chapel or before an NFL game or a baseball chapel or whatever, and you've got people in one locker room praying that uh, that basically that they would win. And you've got people in the other locker room praying for the same thing. And I, also, I often wonder, you know, is God really confused by all of that? And, uh, you know, there's, the, there's that confusion. What happens when you've got two people who are 180 degrees apart from one another praying for something that is an absolute opposition? And, you, you know, how does that all work out? And I heard a story of, uh, actually it was Bill, Bill Simsek. Bill is uh, celebrating his 60th birthday, so they, they sent him out on a hunting trip. And uh, Jan sent him out on a hunting trip, and he was out hunting, and he hadn't had a chance to shoot anything all day long. And uh, sure enough, he, he felt like something was following him and he couldn't figure out what it was. And as he was walking, he could sense something behind him and he turned around to look and there was a mountain lion about 30 yards away from him and he was coming at him. And uh, so Bill turned and he aimed his gun and he started to shoot and sh- you know, and nothing happened. And the gun jammed. And he started to shoot again, nothing happened. He threw up his gun and he started to run. Well, being 60 years of age versus a mountain lion, he didn't have much of a chance. And so as, as he's running, he's 60. Did I tell you he's 60 years old? Well, <laughs> he, He's 60 and he's running and as he's running this mountain lion's catching up on him he gets right to the edge of a cliff and there's nowhere to go he turns around that mountain lion's about 10 yards from him and he drops to his knees and he starts praying oh God oh God please God please make this mountain lion be a Christian and he turned and looked and exactly at that moment of time that mountain lion dropped down to its knees stopped everything and said dear Lord I thank you for the food I'm about to receive You know, what what happens when there's that that type of conflict involved in, in prayer? The point is this. Where there is confusion, only God's Word can provide truth and clarity. Where there's confusion, only God's Word can provide truth and clarity. And the Bible provides instruction in all areas of life. If you recall, on a regular basis, I remind you that the Word of God is inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for instruction and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be adequately equipped to do the work that God has for us to do while we're still here on this earth. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me in the, in, in the, into the book of Daniel. As you know, we've been going through the book of Daniel. We're at chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. And if you recall, there's some confusion that's taken place here as far as Daniel was concerned. And in this particular passage, we learn of the power of prayer from the life of Daniel. He is confused as he looks at the events of his life that are taking place, the circumstances that surround him, as as was sung about this morning. Our circumstances continually change, and as a result, the circumstances in our life God uses for a purpose, and the purpose is to draw us closer to Him. For those who don't know Him, it's to draw us to Him for the first time. For those who do know Him, it's to keep us close to Him so that we never forget that He is our everything. He is our sufficiency and we have nowhere to go nowhere else to turn but to Him and to His Word for clarity and confusing issues. Daniel was confused. He had lived to see the, the, uh, the transition between the Babylonian Empire and now the Medes and the Persians. The Persians have taken over. He has seen all the events that have surrounded all this. He saw the vision of Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, who we learned about later in hindsight. He did not know, but he knew there was one who was coming, who was going to destroy the nation of Israel to some degree. And he was confused and he was troubled by all of it. And as in this confusion, in this, uh, this troubling state that he was in, he turned to the Word of God for clarity. And in Daniel chapter 9, we see verses 1 through 3, we read, "...in the first year of Darius, the son of Hazorah, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed, as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years." He said, and so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In this particular passage, we're going to take a look at three points. The first one, we've gone into great detail, and that's the circumstances of Daniel's prayer. We see the background, we see everything that's involved, but there's a couple of things specifically that I want to point out as it relates to the direction that we'll be going. And number one is this, in Daniel in his confusion, he turned to the word of God. In verse two, it says that I, Daniel, observed in the books I turn to the Word of God specifically says the Word of the Lord was revealed through Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Israel or Jerusalem, namely 70 years. If you recall, the nation of Israel was disciplined by God, and the fifth stage of discipline was that they would be removed from their land, they would be taken captive by a foreign and hostile nation, and that they would be taken out of Jerusalem, and the city would sit vacant and empty for 70 years because it was a direct result of their disobedience before God, and that for 70 consecutive Sabbath years, they did not obey the command of God to let the the land lay fallow. Every seventh year, the people of Israel instructed that that year they were to turn completely their trust to God, that God would provide for them and also provide for the, the poor. They were not to work for one year straight. And it's fascinating to me, you talk about cultural differences, if God told any of us not to work for one year straight, I don't think anybody would run out and be disobedient. <laughs> but apparently, that was something they struggled with. In Jeremiah chapter 29, you don't need to turn to it, I'll just read it. But if we recall, we read these words. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, says, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And then I will be found. In Daniel chapter 9, if you'll notice the three things that we observed about the circumstance were number one, Daniel had a tremendous awareness of the word of God. There were several passages that he studied, not just the book of Jeremiah because the Bible tells us it was plural. So there were several passages, several books. He understand from the word of God what exactly it was that they were going through. And that also after those 70 years were complete, that God says that I will bring you back to the land. So as they were nearing this particular time in their history, he realized that, hey, you know what? I'm looking at the Word of God and the Word of God says, God, you're going to be bringing us back to our land. But it was contingent on what? It was contingent on them coming to him and praying. See, it says, so I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I love Daniel and I love the example that he is for every one of us. A man of almost 85 to 90 years of age at that point in time and he had a simple, very simple relationship with God. When he turned to the Word of God and God said to do something, he didn't overthink it, he didn't rationalize it, he didn't justify it, and he didn't try to explain it away. The Bible says that at that point in time, my people will come to me and they will pray. And so Daniel, basically understanding the command of God to pray, he did exactly as God said. He prayed. Some of us struggle with why should we pray, and the answer is very simple, because God tells us to. Because God hears our prayers, because God wants to have communication and communion with us, fellowship with us. And the only way we can have fellowship even with one another is to talk to each other, to spend time with each other, to listen to one another. And our study of the Word of God is God speaking to us. And in the stillness and the quietness of our heart, the Spirit of God, if you know God, begins to speak to you and to teach you and to guide us into all truth as far as God is concerned. And so we need to take those times where God says, where we're told to cease striving and know that He's God. There's times where we've got to slow down in life and make time, quiet time, to be with God so we can have a time of communication with one another. God, He talks to us through His Word. He teaches us through the presence of His Spirit in our life. But also, prayer is us responding back to Him. And so God says to pray, Daniel says, okay. And not only does he say, okay, that he'll pray, but I want you to also notice that he prays with a fervent spirit. He's not half-hearted about his relationship with God. He's determined to do as God tells him to do. It says, so I gave my attention to God. The King James says, so I set my face to God and nothing was going to stop me from doing what God told me to do in the Word of God. I would seek Him with all my heart. The example, one of the examples I used last time was Jacob, who wrestled with the angel of the Lord and did so all night long, and he said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. You can tweak my other hip, you can do anything that you want, but I am not letting you go, God, until you bless me. The persistence of prayer. Many of us, would begin to pray, and oh, what praying, and it's, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure if he hears anything. Well, you know, I, I tried. How persistent is that? How determined is that? How, how, how much is that Compared to Daniel, who set his face to God and said, God, I am going to pray. I'm going to pray fervently. I'm going to pray with all my heart. But you know what's fascinating is it wasn't one time in his life. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of fellowship with God. He was a man throughout his life. Every situation that came up, God was the first person that he went to. The Word of God was the first place that he started, and, and praying to God was the next thing that he did. If you recall, any time he was in trouble, he got his key group of friends together and said, We need to pray. We got to get together. We got to pray. If you recall, they said, hey, if you pray, you're going you're to lose your life. He said, I don't care. I'm determined. I'm set to do what's right before God. And if you're telling me I can't pray or I will go into a lion's den, hey, what's, what, there's no decision to be made here. That's not a hard choice. Throw something hard at me. That wasn't hard for him because he was determined in his relationship with God. The circumstances were incredible. So what's interesting as we look at all this, also his attitude in prayer was one of humility. It was one of Humility. Says I came to him with supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He was humble before God. It grieves me when I when I hear and and see people make remarks today that, you know, God, you have to do this. I'm claiming a verse. Or I'm making a claim. I'm making a demand on you. You have to do what I tell you to do. (laughs) How foolish are we? God doesn't have to do let's get something straight. God is not here to serve us, we are here to serve Him. I don't know if you understand that, but that's just kind of the way it works. And the quicker you deal with it, the better off you're going to be in your walk with God. He is not here to serve us, He is here to be served by us, and if He does anything for us at all, it's by His grace and by His mercy. Because He just wants to, that's why, and sometimes that's really hard to comprehend too, but that's a wonderful truth. So as we look at all this, it leads us to the conditions or basically the content of Daniel's prayer. And if you've got your Bibles, we'll look at um, verses 3 through 6. Specifically, there are several areas that I want to discuss and bring out in light of the contents or the conditions of his prayer. It says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And he says, And I prayed in verse 4 to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. I want you to notice something. He says, And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed. Now, what's interesting to me is, the first thing I want to point out is, Daniel's recognition of his relationship to God. I want you to notice his Recognition. Daniel recognized he had a very special relationship with God. And it's pointed out in the personal pronoun when he says, And I pray to the Lord who? My God. First of all, he says, I pray to the Lord. Meaning what? He recognized he didn't pray to any Lord or to any God. He prayed to the Lord and the God. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, and know this to be truth. There is only one God. We live in a multicultural, diverse community anymore as far as the world is concerned. And everyone wants us to buy into the fact that there are many different versions of God. There are many different gods. There are many gods as long as you're sincere in your worship of God. There are many gods. While the Bible specifically says that's not correct. There is only one God and that's why it behooves us to know who that one God is. We do not create God in our mind. We do not create gods because we want to create a God. There is only one God and we need to know who He is. Well, obviously, Daniel knew who He was. He says, because I pray to my God. A very personal and intimate relationship with God. He wasn't throwing a prayer up to heaven hoping that, hey, if you're up there somewhere, somebody, if you can hear me, I'm just throwing this out to you. He wasn't throwing out a prayer. He knew who he was speaking to. He knew who he had fellowship with. He says, I'm praying to my God. Now also, you want to realize too that he says, to my God, the great and awesome God. It grieves me when I hear people say things like, you know, the big dodger in the sky. The man upstairs. That's pathetic. That's tragic. See, Daniel knew his God. And he also knew that he wasn't the big Dodger or Yankee in the sky. That he was the great and the awesome God. He was the creator of all things. He was the giver of life. Anything that Daniel was, was because he owed it all to God. The song that was sung this morning in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What have you received that has not been given to you? Who do you think that you are? That you're something special than anybody else on the face of the earth? What do you and I have that hasn't been given to us by God? Any talent, any ability, anything that we have is, is because of God, not because of us. And it's not even because we deserve it. It's because He chose to give it to us. Who do we think that we are? Daniel knew who God was. He wasn't the man upstairs. He was the great and awesome God, the giver of life. And if he had chosen that very morning to take Daniel's breath away from him, he could do it in an instant in time. He knew who he was dealing with. He was the great and awesome God. But it was also very personal And see, sometimes we get frightened by this concept of He's a great and awesome God, and who are we that He would even consider us? The Psalms ask that often, doesn't it? God, who are we? We're but dust that You would even consider us. But the bottom line is this, that the Bible teaches us very clearly that you and I can know God in a personal way. Even King David said the same in Psalm 27 when he said, The Lord is who? He's my shepherd. He says, I shall not want. He makes me, he leads me, he restores me. He was very interactive in in David's life. Anywhere that David went was a result of him following God in the direction that God led. It was God's leading in his life that led David everywhere that he went. He knew his God and he followed him. Jesus said the same when he said that, you know what? The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And he follows follows the voice. Now, for some of us, the concept of knowing God personally is a mind-boggling concept. To me, it was ludicrous at a point in my my life when someone can say that you could know the God who created you. Said you got to be kidding me. You know God? I mean, that's just that's the most foreign concept that a person can have that you can intimately know God and a personal relationship. I want you to stop and think with me for a moment about the whole illustration of a family. I mean, how does one enter into a family? How does one enter into a relationship with other human beings that are so close and intimate that somebody can say this, hey, that's my mother. She's my father. She's she's my father. (laughs) See how confused we are today in our culture? You know, but think about the intimacy of that. That's, That's my mom. There's my dad. The intimacy of that kind of family relationship. You know, I was thinking about it and struggling with the whole idea of knowing God personally. And the thing that stood out was this. You know, that God covers all his bases when he says that, you know what? That we come to know God the same way that we have intimate family relationships here on earth. And that's how. Either through birth or through adoption. And so there's no mistake at all about it. God says, hey, I want to use that as an illustration. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. The idea of how can I know God personally is laid out very clearly when a guy named Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, who didn't understand the law of God, which is kind of fascinating. He taught it, but he didn't understand it. Came to Jesus late at night one night and said, hey, what does a person have to do to get into heaven? What does a person have to do to get into heaven? To be pleasing to God. How can I be assured that I'm going to get to heaven after I die? Now there was a man in John 3, says his name is Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of God. What he's saying is there's evidence. There's evidence of a change in a person's life. He's saying that we're, we're, we come into the world spiritually dead, though physically alive. And when he says that we're to be born again, he's saying we need to be born again or born of the Spirit. It has nothing to do with the physical life, though the physical life is what God uses to get us here so that we have an opportunity to respond to His gift of salvation in Christ so that we'll become born again or alive spiritually. And he says that and you can know it because there's evidence of it. You will see the results. If any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. There's a change in a person's life. You and I cannot enter into a personal relationship with the God of this universe without having something in our life change dramatically. It's amazing to me when I hear, of oh yeah, well yeah, I know God. Well, do you really? How do you know that you know God? How can you be sure that you know God? How can you be guaranteed that when you die that you'll be absent from this body and that you'll be present with God? I'll tell you how we can know. We can know based on the truth of the word of God. If God says what he says, he means what he says. He's not going to change his mind. But there also has got to be evidence in our life that there's a change. Something's got to change. Something's got to give. Why? Because we were blind and now we can see. We were dead and now we're alive. We were lost and now we're found. There's a drastic difference. And he goes on and says, Nicodemus says, Well, how can these things be? He didn't understand it. I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus answered and said to him, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. That's pretty sad. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And I love that because basically what he's saying is this. Hey, look, I was there and I came here. I know how to get there because I'm from there. And I'm telling you right now, when he answered Philip and Philip said, how do we know how to get to the Father? He said, hey, Philip, listen to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes in the Father but through me. I don't know about you, but I want to get directions from somebody who's been there because I think they got a better idea of how to get there. You hear what I'm saying? Well, I've never been there before, but I think you go this way. Uh, No, thank you. Have you been there? Please tell me. I like the people that say, hey, this is the way it is and this is the quickest route. I like that. And that's what he said. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible is very clear that we can come into an intimate relationship with God, our Creator, when we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, For as many as received Him, speaking of Christ, to them He has given us the privilege to be called what? Children of God, to those who believe in His name. Children of God, an intimate relationship with the God who created us through faith in Christ. Turn with me in your your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 for a second. Romans chapter 8, and here God covers the whole idea of adoption. For those of you who say, well, you know, I I don't understand this whole concept of being born into a family because, you know, I don't know my parents. I was adopted. Well, good, then you understand this. In Romans chapter 8, look at verse 12. We start here. It says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of what? Adoption. As sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba in Hebrew has to do with the idea of being um, Daddy. In the Greek, also in the Aramaic, it's the same concept. It's the idea of we have such an intimate relationship with God... ...that God the Father is so close and intimate to us... ...that we could call Him Daddy. Now for some of us, we don't really appreciate that. We've got a lot of friends who are from the South... ...and once visiting for the weekend. And I I was thinking that this whole idea of calling your father Daddy... ...is such a wonderful term of endearment. It doesn't matter how old you are, if you're from the South... ...and you've got a close relationship with your father... He is always going to be daddy to you. My daddy. You'd be 50 years old talking about my daddy. You know, and I love that. Because it's a wonderful picture of our relationship with God. Daddy. That we could cry out to Him. Father. Dad. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're what? Children of God. And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. What's amazing to me is once you and I have entered into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we come into a personal relationship with the God who created us. And it's not based upon our own efforts or merits, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. There's nothing you can do to work yourself into the presence of God. The only way that we can come into the presence of God is through faith in Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 16, draw near with confidence, that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in our time of need. Isn't it a wonderful truth that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, that you'll never be condemned by God for your sin or rebellion against God because Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin and my sin on the cross, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That we can go to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that anytime we need help, anytime we need mercy, that God will be there to give us help and mercy. Isn't that a wonderful truth? I want you to understand something about prayer. Jesus said it best when he said this, before now, before you had a relationship with God, before you knew me, he says, before now, you've asked for nothing in my name. It says, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be made full. John 16, 24. And what he was saying was that you didn't have a relationship with God. You didn't know God, but now you do. Do we realize what a privilege it is as God's children to have access to the throne of grace so that anytime we need anything, we will find mercy from God, that we can go to Him? Jesus often said, He said, look, you know what? If you, being fathers here on earth, know how to give gifts to your children... He goes, how much more so can a perfect father give him to them who ask who are his children? The point is this, that when my children come to us or come to me, I want to be there for them. If they need mercy, I want to extend mercy. If they need grace, I want to extend grace. If they need compassion, I want to extend compassion. But also if they need discipline, we'll do that as well. Why? Because whom you love, you also discipline. The bottom line is this though, but we always want to be accessible. See, some of us have a distorted concept of God's accessibility because we've never seen that here on earth. We've never had a father who was accessible, who showed that kind of compassion and love and mercy. We're not showing it to our children, and as a result, we don't understand God. And what we need to do is get back to the Word of God for clarity, and that's this. God's not like us. Thank Him. You know what I'm saying? He is accessible to those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. He is like our daddy. We can go to Him anytime that we want, with any need that we have. And He's accessible. Now, it brings us back to what we're talking about here, going back to Daniel chapter 9, because, see, Daniel, the first thing that he recognized is this tremendous relationship that he had with God. Jesus said, when the disciples said, Lord, we don't know how to pray, what did He say? Then, hey, then pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. Our Father, a family of God, that we can go to God the Father, Anytime that we need help, anytime we need mercy. And so, as a result, Daniel, knowing the word of God, says, So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him. So what? I prayed to God. I prayed to my God, the Lord. The question that you have to ask yourself is this Is God your God? Can you say, He is my God? He is my shepherd? I shall not want. He does lead me. He does guide me. He does direct me. He does restore me. He's actively involved in my life. Why? Because I know Him personally. If that's a foreign concept to you, you need to get that right as quickly as you can. And that's just basically a matter of trust in the Word of God. God says, For as many as received Him, to, him, to them that give the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in His name. The bottom line, it's by grace we're saved through faith that you need to come into a relationship with God by believing that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. And that moment, that instant in time where you say, God, I recognize my need. I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. I do fall short. There is none righteous. I need your help. I need saved. Saved from what? The consequences of my actions because, God, I know you'll judge me for what I've done and what I've said and what I've thought. I need you. See, you only need, saved. You only need a Savior if you know you need saved. And safe from what? Safe from consequences of sin and judgment. Safe from the consequences of being separated from God in a place he calls hell. It's a reality. It's a truth. If you don't know God personally, I, I beg you, I implore you to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And once you enter into that relationship, now you've got a personal relationship with God and you have access to the throne of grace in your time of need. And so as we go down through and we begin to look at this, look at verses 4 through 6, we read these words. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. I want you to notice the second thing. Not only does he recognize his personal relationship with God, but he also, Daniel, recognized their rebellion against God. He recognized their rebellion against God. We can learn a lot from this prayer of Daniel's. Daniel doesn't try to hide or justify his actions or the actions of his people. He readily and openly admits that they've rebelled against him. God, and if you look at that, and he understood that before God would answer his prayer, that he must confess his sin. The greatest hindrance of our prayer life is unconfessed sin before God. Think about this as, a, as just a simple example of it. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we read this about husbands. Husbands, what? Love your wives, live with them in an understanding way, and God lays out the details of how that's to take place. And he says this, because if you don't, what will happen? your prayers would be hindered. Your prayers would be hindered. Sin in our life hinders our communication with God. And the first thing that he does is he recognizes they're rebelling against God. He confessed his sin. We need to confess our sin. Before we go to God in prayer for anything, we need to confess if we're wrong before Him. God, You know my heart. You know what I've done. You know what I've said. You know some of the things that I've done nobody else has done. I need to confess that. And I need to make that right before you. And he goes through in great detail and he lays them all out. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned from your ordinances. Isn't that interesting? One of the things that I would highly recommend... ...is that any time that we confess our sins before God or even one another... ...that we get very specific when we do it. That we get very specific when we do it. Have you ever noticed how easy it is as a spouse... ...if you have a disagreement with your spouse... To be able to say, well, I know that I upset her in some way, so I think I better throw out one of those blanket, blanket things. You know what I'm saying? Those blanket ones, ladies, you know what I mean. It's like this. Uh, I- I'm sorry. It's, see, some of us, we, we uh, guys, don't, I mean, some of us, don't we do it, and we don't even know why? But we're just, no, it's just like, it's got to be, it's just the right timing. But here's what usually happens. Uh, I'm sorry. And see, so, like, for what? Ugh. For what you know, for whatever it is that I did this time to upset you <laughs> there 's not a lot of depth to that, is there but you know well, whatever it was it 's a little shallow, but how wonderful it is when it's i 'm sorry that I did this, this 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 did you, did you, did you even notice this other one that i 'm uh, if not i 'm not throwing it out. <laughs> But, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we we want to. and, And think about it, even with our children. Isn't it important with our children that they become specific? I'm sorry. Well, what are you sorry for? Uh, writing on the wall. All right. See, why do we do that? You know, even our criminal justice system does that. And it's wonderful. You stand before a judge, and the judge says, Okay, you're pleading guilty? Yes, Your Honor. To what? And he starts to read them off. One at a time. Guilty. Guilty. The next one. Guilty. The next one. Guilty. Next one. Guilty. Next one. Guilty. Why? To rub it in their face? No. To reinforce the behavior that was wrong. I can recall when our children were younger and, we, and they'd say, we're sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what was interesting was, it was until we said, you're sorry for What? And it wasn't until they started to say exactly what it was they were sorry for up until that point in time there was no brokenness, there was no humility. But once they had to repeat out loud what they did they were broken, there was tears, there was humility. I think that is confession. It's agreeing with God that what we did was wrong. Repentance is when we turn from that act and go another direction but the bottom line is this, that's what confession is all about. I think it's important that we recognize in prayer that Daniel was very specific. Lord, we committed iniquity before You. We, we did exactly these things. Look what we did. I mean, we sinned. We committed iniquity. We acted wickedly. And we rebelled. We even And look at this one. We, and it's like, oh man, you know what? And, and we even, notice what he says, we even turned from listening to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name. As if everything else that we did wasn't bad enough, we even turned and did not listen to your prophets who came to speak the truth in your name. I want you to listen to something very carefully. We hear the word of God through very simple instruments of God, human beings, that God has gifted to do that. Simple people. You're looking at probably the best example you'll ever see of a simple person. And I mean that sincerely. God uses simple people to preach and teach the Word of God. If you'll recall Paul's instruction to Timothy in Timothy 2.4, he said, Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Why was Paul so emphatic? If you recall the rest of the passage he said you need to preach the word and the reason you need to preach the word is because there is a day that is coming where people want to accumulate or collect for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear they will want to be entertained they will not want to hear the truth of the word of God they will want to hear what they want to hear and if we don't live in that culture today I don't know what culture ever exemplified this particular warning we live in a culture today where people say, tell me that I'm okay, tell me that I'm fine, tell me I'm okay, tell me you're okay, tell me what I'm doing is okay, tell me what I want to do is okay, tell me I'm handsome, and uh, tell me that this outfit I'm wearing makes me look thinner. Please <laughs> tell me that. I, I love it. I saw a comedian, his wife said, uh, honey, does this, this outfit make me look thinner? Uh. Well, how do you answer that? No one wants to know that what they're doing is wrong. No one wants to know what they're thinking about is doing is wrong. I had a conversation with a friend this past week and what he wanted to do is wrong. And yet, you know what? I'd hesitate to say, look, I'm just telling you from the word of God, what you want to do is wrong. You have the freedom to choose. You can make any choice that you want, but I'm just here to help you understand that from God's perspective, what you're choosing to do is wrong and it's going to be devastating. And if you remember, when we violate the word of God, there is no remedy oftentimes for what we choose to do. So what's fascinating is, see, we don't want somebody to say, hey, you know what, you know, let's not talk about the outfit, uh, whether it makes you look thin or not. What we need to talk about is, hey, maybe you need to go on a diet, maybe you need to exercise. Well, that's not politically correct. (laughs) Oh, you don't want to say that. You want to say, oh, sure, that, yeah, yeah, it does. That outfit makes you look, what, how how skinny do you want to look? See, you know, And what's sad about that is it's rare today to find a person who goes to church to listen to a preacher, then measure what was taught against the Word of God. We go into church today and we listen to someone teach or preach and we measure their performance. Well, he was pleasant to the ear. He looked nice today. He uh, didn't offend me in any way. But bottom line is this. When are we going to go and start... Hey, look over here. Come here. All right, thank you. God, you sneak out. They're looking over here. You people amaze me. Anyway, back to what we are talking about. Back to the reason we're here. How many people do you know that go in and measure what was said against the truth of God's word? You hear stupid statements like, that was great, or that was wonderful. Well, why was it wonderful? Why was it great? Was it truth or not? Well, I don't know. How do you know if it's truth? Well, here, Acts 16 says that, you know what? The Thessalonians weren't as noble-minded as the Bereans because the Bereans listened to the Apostle Paul teach the Word of God. And what did they do? They examined the Scripture daily, make sure what he was saying was from God. They measured it against the Word of God. They were looking to see, was this really God's Word or was this this guy's opinion? And that's really important that we get to that point in life because what we do is we come to validate or excuse what we think or what we're doing. And if you don't like what's being preached or taught at a certain church, you go to another church. And if you can't find the one who best exemplifies what it is that you're all about, then you form another church all, your t- all on its own that has to do with exactly one common denominator, which maybe everybody in that church is agreement on, and that may be some type of behavior, and say, hey, we're all this way, so let's all form a church. So what are we doing? We're not looking to search the truth of the Word of God. We're looking to validate our actions. We're looking to to excuse what we want to do and who we are and what we're all about. We want to know that we're okay. If you're not okay, you're going to hear it. Why? Because all Scripture is profitable for instruction and what? And reproof and correction. There are times we're not okay. There are times we need to be made right before God. There are times we think wrong. There are times we do wrong. And God's Word is what gives us clarity to know the direction that we go. Now what's sad about this is, is that here's Daniel saying, you know what, and above everything else that we did, we didn't even listen to your spokesman who came in your name to tell us the truth as far as you were concerned. We didn't even listen to them. And in fact, many of them they killed. They didn't like what they said, which isn't surprising. Why? Because they were confronted in their sin. And they had an option at that point, either confess and agree that their sin was wrong before God, or they had to shut up the messenger because they didn't like the message. Now, what's interesting to me is, is that I have people that come and they'll say things like, "Uh, well, you know, let me give you an example. How much time we got? Oh, we got a few minutes. Let me give you an example. A few weeks back, I made the point and I said, you know what, it's wrong for a Christian to become partners in business with a non-Christian. It's wrong for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And I was very specific about it, very clear about it. And we had several interesting conversations that arose because of that particular statement. And the one interesting point that I hear people say is that they say, well, you know what? Well, show me in the Bible where it says thou shalt not be partners in business with a non-Christian, if it's an accounting firm, or if it's a, you know, if it's a manufacturer, if it's a supplier, or show me in the Bible where it says thou shalt not. I need to take a moment to explain to you that something very important. If we are ever get off the ground in our relationship with God and walking with God and and being obedient to God, and that is this. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul told Timothy that he must be a man who rightly divides or accurately handles the word of truth. The term that's used, rightly divide, was a term that was used for leather workers, of which the Apostle Paul was a tent maker or a leather worker. And it has to do with the idea of a pattern. And he would take a pattern and he would cut out the pattern. And he used the term that was used by saying, you need to be a person who rightly divides the word of truth. You need to be a person who can take the bits and pieces of the word of God and rightly, accurately handle it so that when you put the whole picture together, it's very clear what God is trying to say. You understand what I'm saying? So that it forms an entire picture. So now what we're looking for in Scripture is, if the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not, the Bible was very clear to give a picture or a pattern of the will of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to use this as an illustration. And it's very important that we grasp this so that we understand how to discern the will of God in our life. This passage is the one that I use, so I'm going to go back to it so that there's an understanding of it. Because there are many who struggle with... The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not go into business. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not marry. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not, whatever. And to you, I just challenge you to consider something, and that's this. In verse 14, we read these words. Do not be bound... That's a command. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Right? Let's take a word study for a second. What does it mean to be bound? There's one. For what partnership? There's another word to grasp. Partnership has righteousness and lawlessness... Or what fellowship, is another word, has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You follow all this? Then he goes on and says, separate yourself or be separated from those who don't believe in God from those who have not come into a relationship with God, from those who do not put Christ first in their life, from those who do not put the Word of God central to their life, where all decisions are made based on their relationship with God and the Word of God. He's saying separate yourself from any kind of interaction or intertwinement or entwinement or, or, or meshing of any sort that's going to cause confusion in your walk with God. He says, do not be bound, and that's a command. That's like saying, thou shalt not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness. Fellowship is a word that has to do with our relationship, a personal relationship with God. We have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God when we enter into a relationship with God by believing in Christ. So now the commonality is this. Hey, you know what? Is Jesus Christ first in that person's life? Is the word of God first and premier in that person's life? Uh, does, does every decision that they make revolve around what the word of God has to say as far as direction is concerned? See, it's really important that we grasp it Now when you start to ask yourself some questions about the things that we've talked about in application, certainly Christ and the Word of God and doing right is not common ground for a Christian and non-Christian. Certainly Christ isn't first in the the life of a person that's not a believer. That's certainly the case. You know and I know because before I was a Christian, I lived to please myself. After I gave my life to Christ, now my life is lived to please God. There's a diametrically opposed uh, uh, goals in life. He goes on and says that. Now, if you look at this, what statement is a Christian who becomes partners with a non-Christian in business saying? I'll tell you what you're saying. You're saying, it's more important to me to make money. It's more important to me to have prestige. It's more important to me to have position in life than it is to do what's right before the word of God. And I'll guarantee you, the illustrations I gave you, that there's going to be problems and consequences behind that. What What is a person saying in marriage who says, you know what, yeah, I love the Lord, but you know what, I want to marry so-and-so, and he or she's not a Christian. What are you saying? You're saying that, you know what, whether you know it or not, you're telling that other person, you know what, you are the most important person in my life. And that, my friends, is a violation of God's greatest commandment that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Whether you want to recognize it or not. What is a person who gets intimately involved in the dating process? Because obviously you have to date before you want to marry a non-Christian, so there's a, there's a process that leads up to it. What is a person who's dating and becomes intimately involved? Is there any commonality as far as Christ is concerned in the Word of God? No. Is there any commonality as concerned as far as fellowship with other believers? No. What harmony, what partnership does righteousness have with unrighteousness? So when a person's dating and becomes intimately involved to the point where now they're saying, I want to marry this person, they've gone so far down the road that they've already, and they say, and here's what I hear people say, but I'm not compromising. What are they saying? They're saying, well, we're not having a physical sexual relationship, therefore I'm not compromising. My attitude is very simple, and that's this. How can you say you're not compromising? You've already done it all through the process. And ask them a question. What does it mean when you tell a non-Christian you love them? What are you you saying? What are you really saying to that person? Who's the most important person in your life? Is it Jesus Christ and the Word of God? Or is it people that come into our life? The point that I'm trying to make to you is this. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not smoke dope. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not snort coke. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not view pornography on the internet. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not eat 40 pounds of donuts in one sitting. The Bible doesn't say that thou shalt not go to the party on Friday night. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't have be friends with Joe or Sally or Mary or whoever it is. The Bible says thou shalt not have them as your friends. Show me, Dad, in the Bible where it says thou shalt not have friends with Joey. (laughs) What's fascinating, the Bible doesn't even say thou shalt not have sex outside of marriage. Isn't that interesting? Not in those exact words. But it certainly says it, doesn't it? There's anybody here in good conscience before God that can tell me that any of the things I just rattled off that God doesn't strictly forbid. The bottom line is this. We need to become people who rightly divide the word of truth. Who do not look into the Bible for excuses for our behavior, but turn to the Bible to find truth for our life. The Bible does say, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The Bible does say that God went to Solomon and said, Solomon, I'm just going to tell you something. I don't want you to get involved with women from foreign lands whose God is not your God. I don't certainly don't want you to get involved with in them, and I certainly don't want you to marry them. Why? Because the moment that you marry them, they will turn your hearts far from me. What did Solomon do? He said, God, that wasn't clear enough for me. I'm going to do it anyway. And you know what happened? He did and they did and they turned his, his heart far from God. The Bible says that Solomon's indictment was that his heart was no longer wholly devoted to God. How did it happen? He disobeyed the word of God. He compromised. He knew exactly what God said. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. When you're talking with your kids about who their friends should be or shouldn't be, it's not too hard to sit down and say, hey, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not be friends with Joe, but I'm telling you, you know, the, the, the Bible's very clear that Joe's not a good influence in your life, that Joe doesn't love God, Joe doesn't put God first, that Joe's going to do things that you shouldn't be doing if you want to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling or pleasing to God, and I'm just telling you as a father and as a parent, I understand exactly where Joe's coming from, and it's not a good situation, and I'm going to tell you right up front, no, you're not going out with Joe, you're not going anywhere with Joe. It's like the joke of the guy who says that, you know, the first thing about somebody wants to come and date your daughter and they sit, sit out in the driveway and beep their horn, they better be making a delivery because they ain't picking nothing up. <laughs> right? Hey, Amen. I hear you. What's the point? The point is this. We must become men and women who go to the Word of God to discern God's truth, not to justify our actions and not to look for loopholes. If you recall the formula that I gave last week, I want to remind you of what it is. That is, a diligent study of Scriptures followed by prayer is the formula for determining God's will. A diligent study of the Scriptures followed by prayer is God's formula for determining His will. And once His will is revealed... Then I would suggest that you be obedient. Daniel 9:6 reminds us the messenger is not the authority. Now, here's another thing, and I'm going to kind of wrap it up on this, but I want you to not to miss this. The messenger is not the authority. The one sending the messenger is the ultimate authority. The message is the authority. See, now here's the way this works. Daniel said in verse 6, he says, Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, and here's the phrase, who spoke in thy name, who spoke in thy name. You follow that? This is really important. The authority rests upon the one who sends the messenger. The messenger has no authority. The message has the authority because it's backed by the one who sends the messenger. You follow that? Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, he asked God, God, you're telling me to go into Egypt and you're telling me to tell Pharaoh to let all these workers go. Who should I say sent me? He said, you tell him I am. By the authority of God himself, you have come with a message. And the message is, Pharaoh, I'm here to deliver a message. Don't take this personal. It's not me. I'm just delivering it. Let everybody go. Just want to tell you, that's the message, right? And, and, you know, it's like a Western Union guy coming to bring a message to your house. They've got a message and they go, oh, I'm reading it. I don't think they're going to like this one. So what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to deliver it whether they like it or not, whether the recipient's going to like it, even whether they like when they read it, whether they like it or not. Here's the problem that I have that I've got to share with you. I'm reading through the Word of God, and you know what? There are a lot of things that I go, Man, you know what? I don't like it because I'm guilty. I guess I've got to confess my sin and get right with God before I deliver the message because I, I, I need to be you know, pure when I'm going to deliver it. Otherwise, I'm just as guilty as other people that are going to hear it. See, and what happens is we begin to somehow or another minimize the message because of the frailty of the messenger. I don't care whether you like me or not. See, the problem that we have in our culture today is this. Well, I don't like what he said. Hey, this isn't about me. Nice try. It's easy to get off the hook if you think I'm telling you to do something. Man, alive. I mean, even put people closest in my life have a hard time doing what I ask them to do. Why well, would I expect you? You don't even know me. Why well, I expect you to do something I'm telling you to do? What, are you kidding me? It'd be easy. You walk out and go out and like what he said. Hey, well, I don't care whether you like what I said or not. Because if what I tell you is truth from the Word of God, then you're dealing with somebody greater than me. You're dealing with God Himself. I'm just a messenger. And if I am true to the message that I've been sent to give, which is to teach and preach the Word of God, then you've got to deal with the message, and ultimately you've got to deal with the messenger, the one who sins. You know, it's phenomenal to me how foolish we are in our culture that if you have a pastor, for example, who falls into some type of sin, that all of a sudden anything that they said up to that point in time didn't make any, must not have been true. Hey, don't be stupid. If you're preaching the Word of God and you're examining Scripture, you can see whether what I'm saying or not is true by the Word of God. And if you've got a relationship with God, the Spirit of God's testifying with your Spirit, guiding you into all truth, teaching you that, hey, you know what? What He's saying is right. Amen, isn't it? The Spirit of God's going, hey, you know what? This is a problem in your life. You better deal with it. You need to confess your sin. It has nothing to do with me. I don't have any power at all. But the Word of God is living and active and reaches us exactly where we are. There's so many different people. What an eclectic group of people if you think about it. And what's wonderful is that God's Word, when it goes out, meets you exactly where you are. I don't even have a clue what's going on in your life. And frankly, sometimes I don't even care. Seriously, you know, I'm getting tired. <laughs> and you're getting tired of listening. point is this. They rejected the messenger. And as a result, they ultimately rejected the message and the one who sent it. Do you follow that? It's like an ambassador for a country going to a foreign land. And that country won't let that ambassador in. That ambassador's not rejected. The country who sent that ambassador was being rejected. And that's the statement that's being made. See, listen, when God's Word is preached, proclaimed, taught, and you reject it or I reject it, you're not rejecting a pastor or a teacher or some evangelist or some other spokesperson. You are rejecting God Himself. And I don't know if you realize that, but I don't even know if you really want to do that. I mean, if you stop and think about it, I don't take rejection personally. This isn't about me. This is about the Word of God. Notice that God's word is equally accessible to all people. It says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. To who? To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. God made his word accessible to everyone. And every one of them were held accountable by God because every one of them rejected his truth. We've learned from Daniel's prayer two things. And we'll end on this. Number one, we learned that Daniel recognized he had a relationship to God. It was a personal relationship because he believed in the God who created him. He believed that one day that God would send a Messiah, Savior, into the world to save men from their sins. He believed in Him. And in Him, He has life. And He has it abundantly. If you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with God, you can get that resolved right now in the quietness of your own heart. By confessing and agreeing with God when he says there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned. There's a person here that doesn't know in their heart that they've screwed up before God. They're not perfect. You know it and I know it. And the consequences for sin is judgment. But God says that, hey, you know what? If you just believe that I've taken care of that and I've sent Christ to die for you, that you will be saved from that judgment. There's now no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ. For as many as received him, to them they give the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. That you can enter into a personal relationship with the God who made you by believing in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth that is. The second thing is, if you have that relationship, never take this for granted. Because we live in a world that does not have a relationship with God like we do. A personal relationship with the God who made us, that we can go to him and we can call him Daddy. That we can go to him and have fellowship with him that we can go to the throne of grace anytime we have a need in our life and know that God hears our prayer, that He's available for us. What a wonderful truth that is that many of us take for granted and that we forget how real that really is. And as we look at Daniel's prayer, and we'll continue next time, Daniel understood it. And as he searched the Word of God, he learned the truth of God. We need to become people who rightly divide the Word of truth. We need to look at the pattern that the Bible teaches and not just the specific words that you're looking for. And what's so funny about it is the Bible could say, Thou shalt not go into business with a non-Christian. Thou shalt not marry a non-Christian. Thou shalt not... But you know what the Bible says? Thou shalt not lie and we struggle with that. You know what I mean? God can get as clear as you think you want Him to be, but the reality is this. Are you looking at the Word of God to justify your actions, or are you searching the Word of God to learn truth so that God will reveal His will to you so that you will then walk in obedience with Him? That's two entirely different ways to search the Word of God. And what's fascinating to me is most people that struggle with things that are going on in their life, they haven't taken a minute of their time to search the Word of God because they already know as a believer in their heart, God's Spirit is telling us, before we even search the Word often, you know what, you don't need to search the Word of God because you already know in your heart what you're going to find out. You just need to be obedient. Father, thank you for this time that we had to worship you in song, that we had to worship you through the teaching and the instruction of your Word. God, every one of us struggle and every one of us are sinners. We all fail miserably. And it's amazing to me that you would even consider me, that you would even extend mercy to me. God, out of this whole world of people, that you would have sent Christ to die for me. God, it's such a humbling thing. And I can relate to Daniel and his humility coming to you, the great and awesome God, realizing what a privilege it is to approach your throne of grace with confidence. God, I just pray that we will become people who rightly divide the word of truth, that when we're wrong, that we'll confess it clearly, specifically, and that we'll repent and walk from it. God, we just thank you for your love that we have through Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.